was said that it was the smallest number of passengers the Algoma had ever carried. It was supposed that she only had seven cabin passengers and six steerage passengers. The remaining 49 people were all members of the crew, though the numbers are debated. It had been a slow season for the ship. There was now a rail route around Lake Superior, and smallpox was hitting the region hard. Now that the season was coming to a close, there was even less demand. The Algoma could expect this to be one of her last trips of the season. Hello, and welcome to the Shipwreck Archive. Thank you. Would you happen to have the story, The Deceptive Safety of the Algoma? Here we are. Enjoy! The steamship Algoma was one of the first steel-hulled ships on the Great Lakes. She had been ordered from the Glasgow shipyard of Aiken and Manzel by the Canadian Pacific Railway. She and her two sister ships were the first ships bought by the rail line, and they were tasked with a run that would connect the railway across Lake Huron and Lake Superior. The estimated 1,750-ton ships were built to carry 240 cabin passengers and 600 steerage passengers when at capacity. First, they needed to reach the lakes, though. The Algoma and her sister ships were built to be cut into pieces to pass through the St. Lawrence canals, and then they were reassembled once they were through and ready to start their careers. The cabins were built out of wood on the upper decks of the ships after the ships were on the Great Lakes. And that spring, the new ships were able to carry passengers. The newspapers commented on how advanced the technology on the new ships was, including a system so that the pilot and the engine room could communicate, and the novelty of ships that were lit by electricity rather than oil lamp. Even the lighting devices in the smoking areas were designed with electricity rather than fire to lessen the chance of fire on board. The main focus of the papers, however, was the very modern steel plating the hulls of the ships were made of, and waterproof bulkheads that seemed to promise that the ships would be safe ones to travel on. In case of an accident, the ships each carried six lifeboats and 600 life preservers. The Algoma was, therefore, more than equipped with enough safety equipment for the 62 people who were on board of her when she left Owen Sound, Ontario. On the 5th of October, 1885, bound for Port Arthur. In addition to the people, she was carrying 134 tons of general cargo and 297 tons of railway supplies. The voyage had no difficulty until shortly after they had passed through the Salt St. Mary Canal on Friday, November 6th. Almost as soon as they reached Lake Superior, there began to be signs that a storm was coming. The wind was picking up, and the clouds on the horizon were dark. Captain Moore, who had the command of the Algoma, was not concerned. The Algoma was a new and strong ship, 
and he was confident in her ability to continue the voyage in spite of any storm that was heading in their direction. He did not change course, and instead headed directly into the poor weather without considering taking shelter until the storm passed. The captain would later describe it as one of the worst storms he had ever experienced on the Upper Great Lakes, an opinion that was shared by many other people who experienced the storm either on the water or on land. Lake Superior had soon been blown into large foam-capped waves by the strong winds, which then crashed over the deck of the Algoma. Through the night, the steamer continued on its course, but the morning of Saturday the 7th brought even worse conditions. There was now blinding snow that prevented the people on the Algoma from being able to see the length of the ship. Since it was around 4 in the morning, a majority of the passengers and crew members had gone to bed and were still asleep in spite of the strengthening storm. One version of the story has Captain Moore's mind now turning to look for shelter. He changed his course toward Rock Harbor, a natural harbor offered by Isle Royal. As the ship neared the entrance of the harbor and safety, she struck. There was a stone reef near the entrance to the harbor, and no one on board the ship had been aware of the danger due to the terrible weather conditions. This version was published in many papers, but Captain Moore disagreed with it, and would later swear a statement that he was intending to head back out into the lake rather than seek the harbor. Because of the lack of visibility offered by the snowstorm, he intended to get further from shore until it cleared. First, they had to take in the remaining sails from their two masts, however, and this involved changing the course several times to allow for the sails to be taken in more easily. It was these course changes, Captain Moore said, that landed them on the rocks of Isle Royal. All precautions had been taken. The engineers and the officers were all on watch. They were running on easy steam, and they were right on course. The only problem it was later discovered was that they had not counted on the force of the wind and its ability to push them further than they expected. They thought they were still 15 miles away from Isle Royal. They were not. They struck first around 4.20 in the morning, and then shortly after she turned and struck a second time, doing even greater damage. From the moment she struck, it becomes difficult to piece together an exact timeline through the chaos, but some things are known. The ship came to a shuddering stop, and the water that now rushed over the bulwarks of the ship quickly flooded the cabin before rushing down and flooding the furnace. Around the ship, the electric lights went out, leaving the ship in darkness. The passengers who had been in the cabin now rushed out begging the officers to tell them what had happened. Captain Moore did his best to reassure them, telling them that they were on a reef, but if everyone kept calm, they would be safely landed. One of the members of the crew around this time came to find Captain Moore to inform him that the ship had a large hole in the bottom 
and she was taking on water fast. Captain Moore ordered that the lifeboats be prepared. He also ordered that the first mate, a man named Hastings, go and wake up the people who had been asleep when the accident occurred. The shock of the impact had woken up most of the passengers, and the sleeping areas of the ship were full of panic as people woke up disoriented, startled, and in the pitch black of the ship in the storm. First mate Hastings, who was worried that he was going to be swept overboard by the waves, or be forced to dive overboard if the ship started sinking, took off his boots and started to stumble through the dark ship. He would soon find the flaw with walking in stocking feet. The waves had smashed the window glass in the ship, and he was not able to avoid it in the dark. Since he no longer had his shoes, he was forced to tie two leather pillows to his feet so that he could continue to try to help those who did not know what had happened. The purser was among those who had been asleep, but he had woken up when the ship had struck. He woke up with those around him and pushed them forward through the steam that had started to rise with the extinguishing of the engine until they reached the forward of the ship, which seemed safer. Some of the other passengers had taken refuge in the main cabin of the ship, but one of the waves that crashed over the ship carried it away, along with the people inside. This included all of the women and children on the ship. In spite of the efforts of several members of the crew, to save them as they were carried off. The ship had struck at 4.20. By 4.40, it was reported that the ship had begun to break up, but the worst was yet to come. Some of the people on board were swept off the deck by the waves that pounded over the ship. Some others decided to risk it with life preservers and jumped into the water in the hopes that they would be able to reach the rocks. Only three of the people who attempted this succeeded. The rest were lost in the rage of the storm. Captain Moore was described as staying calm through the entirety of this. Shortly after the ship struck, he rushed to let off as much steam as possible from the engine, reducing the chance of an explosion, and also making it so that it stopped leaking below decks to add to the existing confusion. Risking his own life, Captain Moore ran a lifeline along the length of the ship and told everyone to hold on. Yet more people climbed into the rigging or clung to the masts of the ship, but every large wave seemed to pick away more people. Some of the people on the ship took shelter under a very small part of the ship cabin that remained near the stern of the ship, the roof of which prevented them from being washed away but they were concerned at every moment that the roof would be smashed down onto them. Captain Moore went to get a post to prop up the roof, but was injured by a large wave as he returned. For a moment, everyone thought he was lost. But the captain clung to the post that he was carrying back and managed to bring it back to prop up the roof. Around six in the morning, the ship broke in half, and the people who had been in the forward part of the ship including the purser, were now carried down with the front part of the Algoma. The waves crashing down on the ship proving too strong for the people on the stern to offer them any assistance. All of the people who had been towards the front of the ship were lost, and the people on the stern of the ship were in a dangerous position, clinging to the lifeline that the captain had strung 
or to the rigging. John McLean, one of the ship's waiters, would say that he had clung to the lifeline for a total of eight hours, each hour thinking he was about to be washed away. Several times, passenger William McCarter, a newspaper reporter who had been traveling on the Algoma at the time of the wreck, came close to being washed away, but Captain Moore was standing beside him, and each time he caught him and held on to him. As it became brighter out, the people who remained on the Algoma could see the tall and menacing rocks all around them, offering no immediate chance for escape. The stern of the ship had been jammed firmly onto the shore and rested there, so they could feel assured that they were not going to suddenly flip off of the rocks. Captain Moore encouraged them to all seek shelter on the lower deck instead, where there was more shelter offered by the wreckage. There they lay for the rest of Saturday, and through the night, with no food, only a couple of blankets to share for warmth, and only the sound of the storm to keep them company. Captain Moore was described as being steady and encouraging throughout, and more than one of the survivors would credit his calm with being a reason for their survival. The force of the storm is best described with finding of the ship's piano being found on the rocks of Isle Royal, 15 feet above the waterline. The initial reports would say that they had managed to get into one of the lifeboats during the storm and reach the shore that way, but the survivors tell a very different story. All of the lifeboats have been washed away or smashed to pieces by the waves. Instead, as Sunday dawned, the storm had finally blown its course and the people on the Algoma could see a fishing boat in the distance. They did what they could to get its attention, but it left without coming to their aid, and they could only suppose they had not been seen. Around noon on Sunday the 8th, the three men who had managed to reach the shore during the storm came to their aid. A lifeline was passed from the ship to the rocks, which was a short distance of only around 50 feet. In this way, they were able to pull a raft from the ship to land. It was so small they had to go one at a time, though Captain Moore had to have another man with him to hold him up, since he had been so injured that he was no longer able to stand. Soon after they had reached the shore, some fishermen did spot them, and they were taken to their home, where they were able to eat something, and they had a place to rest and recover for the night. On Monday morning, the fishermen took their boat and intercepted the Athabasca, one of the Algoma's sister ships, and they were finally able to complete their voyage and reach Port Arthur. Out of the 62 people who had originally been on the ship when she had left Own Sound, only two passengers and 12 crew remained. Captain Moore was badly injured enough that he was not able to say much and was immediately sent to rest and recover. There were some doubts about his survival. He would crawl from this sickbed a few days later after an account in the local newspapers began to circulate, as the fact of the wreck to swear a statement that disputed all of the details put forward in the account. 
shortly after the accounts of other survivors began to appear in the papers, also disputing many of the details in the initial account, which seems to have been mainly fabricated since so little information was available. First Mate Hastings was certainly difficult to reach for comment. He had arrived at Port Arthur as frostbitten and injured as the others, but he seemed unwilling to sit still. He arrived in Port Arthur on Monday, and on Tuesday he boarded the Siskiwit and returned to the site of the wreck in the hopes of finding other survivors and recovering those who had been lost. They searched 20 miles of coastline, but only found two trunks that had belonged to the passengers and three of the four mailbags that the Algoma had carried. Officers of the shipping line came to check the progress, but considering the lateness of the season and the large area of the debris field, it was decided to call back the search efforts of the company. Instead, four fishermen were paid to keep an eye out for anyone who washed ashore during the cold months and bury them on the island so that they could be identified in the spring. The citizens of Port Arthur and some of the members of the crew also joined in the search, and they found the remains of two people, one of which was the wheelsman who had stayed at his post until the end. Both of the people who had been found had clearly been robbed. Their pockets were turned inside out, and the members of the crew who had joined in the recovery knew that the wheelsman had a nice watch and some money on him that was now gone. They also noticed that there were some fishermen nearby who had carpets and other items from the wreckage in their boats. Suspicions were raised, but never proven. With the wreck of the Algoma, a lot of the shine came off of the Canadian Pacific Railway's new ships in the public's eyes. Though the company blamed the poor weather and absolved themselves of any blame of the accident, which at the time was the second worst loss of life in the history of Lake Superior shipping, the newspapers and the government were not so fast. The newspapers blamed how fast the new ships were, this was surely dangerous and a cause of disaster. It was also pointed out that while the Algoma and her sister ships all had waterproof compartments, they did not have a double bottom. The Duluth Tribune came to the conclusion that due to this, other than their very nice passenger accommodations, the new Canadian Pacific Railway ships were inferior to many other ships on the lake rather than safer as the company had claimed. Captain Moore eventually did recover from his injuries, in spite of at least one newspaper report saying that the stress had been too much for him and he had succumbed. Still, he was in rough enough condition that the commissioners in Port Arthur, who were investigating the loss of the Algoma, had to travel to Owen Sound to speak with him rather than ask him to come in front of the inquest. At the end of the investigation, Captain Moore and the first officer Hastings were censured for negligence, though their bravery and actions after the wreck were also acknowledged. Captain Moore's certificate was suspended for a year, and Hastings' certificate was suspended for six months, though Captain Moore's suspension was lessened to nine months by the Minister of Marine due to his long career and good record.
The salvage efforts of the Algoma were long, lasting into 1903. But of the greatest value were her engines, which were recovered in 1886 and brought to Owen Sound, where they were put onto the SS Manitoba, which enjoyed a 60-year career. The Algoma now rests in the area of the Isle Royal National Park and is recognized as a part of the park's historical significance. Isle Royal is no stranger to shipwrecks. For more information, please see Submerged Cultural Resources Study, Isle Royal National Park, edited by Daniel J. Lenhein, or see our other sources in the description below. Thank you for listening. Thank you for visiting the Shipwreck Archives. See you soon.